welcome to Strange Shenanigans, where if you are without a fashionable tinfoil hat, you can't sit at the cool kids table. And if you don't spend your romantic evenings binge-watching obscure cryptology documentaries, then you're doomed to a life of milk-toast romantic partners. <laughs> your overly obnoxious uh, host tonight will be... Ashley. And your ever-pessimistic host will be myself, Stan. Today we're going to talk about the werewolf of Bedburg and... In the governor's mansion of New Hampshire. Speaking New Hampshire. Yeah. I'm going to give you a run for your money for being a pessimist. Yeah. This will be my second segment in a row of, mm, is it real? Yeah. So. Sweet. In your face. You want to start or you want me to start? You'll start. I'll start? Okay. Start with scary. And we're going to start with the Wolf of Bedburg. So in the 1500s, being dubbed a werewolf was a crime reserved for the most gruesome and vile of criminals. In a time where purity and religion were everything, it was believed that the most heinous of crimes could not be committed by a mere human being. The charge of being a werewolf while being charged a witch was popular in America and England in the later in the later periods, it was more common in Germanic and Nordic countries to be dubbed a werewolf. <laughs> so the werewolf of Bedburg, the exact place and date of Peter Stump's birth is unknown. That is because uh, the local church registers were destroyed during the Thirty Years' War about a hundred years after Stump lived. Um, it is most likely in Bedburg, Germany, where he was tried. The name Stump may have been given to him as a reference to the fact that his left hand had been cut off, leaving only a stump. It was alleged that the werewolf had its left forepaw cut off, which implied his guilt. Stump was likely a Protestant. He was a wealthy farmer of his rural community. He seems to have been a widower with two children, mm-hmm. a girl who seems to have been older than 15, and a son of unknown age. Weird. In 1589, Peter Stump was captured and put on the rack to be tortured. But before he was tortured, he openly confessed that to have been practicing black magic since he was 12 years old. Ooh. He claimed the devil had given him a magic belt which enabled him to change into the likeness of a greedy, devouring wolf, strong and mighty, with eyes great and large, which in the night sparkled like fire, a mouth great and wide, with most sharp and cruel teeth, a huge body and mighty paws, and that by removing the belt, he was able to transform back into himself and avoid capture. So he was just, like, openly admitting? Yep, he just, they were going to torture him, and he just straight out said that, admitted all of his crimes that's the weirdest part of the story okay. it wasn't that, that it was tortured out of him it was that before they even started he was just like nope let's not even bother with it here you go that's so weird <laughs> he knew he was getting tortured either way so i think he i think in reality he knew he was going to be tortured so he built this huge elaborate disgusting story weird right so uh he told them where he had last left his belt to hide it and a uh, magistrate sent soldiers to retrieve it and they never found it obviously but for 25 years stump had been murdering 
disemboweling, beheading, goats, lambs, sheep, men, women, and children. He confessed to killing and eating 14 children and two pregnant women. Gross. One of the 14 children being his own son. No. And being why they did not know his age. Ugh. Not only was Stump accused of being a serial murderer and cannibal, but also of having incestuous relationships with his daughter. Oh, god! Who was sentenced to die with him. And that he had also had relationships with a distant relative, which was also considered incestuous, who also confessed to it and confessed to both women, confessed to knowledge of everything he had been doing. Ugh. <clears throat> He sounds achy. The execution of Stump came about on the 31st of October, 1589. We know this part of it exact and his execution and how he was killed because there's four surviving uh, pamphlets of what had happened. There's one in the native German language that was spoken at the time and three that were translated into the King's English. Gross. So, he, he was uh, put to the wheel, which is a rack. Flesh was torn from his body in ten places with red-hot pinchers, followed by his arms and legs. His limbs were broken with the blunt side of an axe head to prevent him from rising from the grave as a werewolf <sighs> before he was beheaded and his body burnt. His daughter and cousin lover uh, <laughs> had similar but slightly less gruesome fates. Uh... So the two theories of this, in reality the man didn't obviously didn't turn into a werewolf, but the two theories, the, the largely accepted theory is that he was a serial killer and a cannibal. And that he came up with this elaborate story much like modern serial killers do that's yeah to yeah. give himself some sort of notoriety in death the secondary theory which is it's mildly believable because of the the situation in germany at the time uh this is from uh i can't the raven report which is a weird obscure website but it, it, it it's a theory shared across a lot of the internet and some actual historical you know history buffs and such though unity was needed during this difficult time of split between catholicism and protestants who were battling constantly for oh, religious yeah, dominance forever. in germany uh with the waning of the Holy Roman Empire in the 1500s and the sense of upheaval and religious separatism was just everywhere. The former Archbishop, Gerhard Turchis von Waldberg, (laughs) had been trying for a number of years to introduce uh, a Protestantism as law, but couldn't. However, uh... When the uh, Cologne War was lost in 1587, Bedburg Castle became the headquarters of the Spanish and Italian mercenaries who were determined to restore the Catholic faith. And we all know how uh, how 
happy the Spanish were to about dealing with other people's religions at this time. <laughs> they were really accepting so, and kind. With the fact of the o- occupation, a lot of it is suggested that the the animal mutilations Ugh. and murders were committed by the Spanish and Italian mercenaries as punishment towards the Protestants and religious persecution. Ew. And then that uh, it was easy to pick a wealthy nut job who only had one hand and make him a scapegoat because he was a nutbag. See that that seems to that that's the other theory, but it also it it lacks the the elements of a timeline, and it also lacks any real investigation, unlike the actual story where there's multiple there's multiple you know stories orally passed down and then there's actually some historical record of what happened right so uh at the end of his torture the local authorities erected a pole with the torture wheel on top of it the figure of a wolf at the top and a pike for peter stump's head to sit for the next following years. Gross. Yep. Everything about that from beginning to end and all who participated is disgusting. Ew. Yeah, right. <laughs> yep. So gross. That almost really gross. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it seems fairly obvious that he wasn't a werewolf. He was a psychopath, most likely, and a serial killer. And it was the easy way to, because the people of the time didn't believe other human beings could commit such atrocities. So they explained it away with the story of a werewolf. Yeah, it does seem like that. Gives you a new appreciation for like now. Right. Nobody's sticking heads on pikes and... I mean, no one's eaten. A there's a couple people out there child lately. Well, well, no, not the eating children, but sticking heads on pikes. I mean, there's a couple uh, out there who could probably still use a good head on the pike. No torture wheels no anymore. No torture wheels. That's just gross. So, look at how we've evolved. Yay! No pikes. <laughs> Bare minimum of humanity. Ugh. We'll be right back at you with the governor's mansion of New Hampshire with Ashley. Dun, dun, dun. All right, so we are back with the governor's mansion of New Hampshire. So I found this out while I was doing research about. Colonel Buck, which if you listened to our last episode, turned into a bunch of malarkey. Big old nothing burger. Which ticks me off because I grew up with this. I mean, I like to think the Colonel Buck story kind of started all my nonsense when I was like six, thinking right. about all the crazy witch stories and ghost stories and I don't know, everything. So that failed me. And I guess it's turned me into just an angry person this week. Because once again, <laughs> I'm looking up something that oh, sounds so great. So many people have gone to and researched and it's so popular. And you're about to hear what happens next. 
So when I was doing research the other day for our show, I came across something even I hadn't heard of. A place in Maine called the Governor's Mansion. So I had some time on my hands and decided to come back and research the Governor's Mansion. And this research actually took me out of Maine into our neighbors in New Hampshire. What is known in New Hampshire as the Governor's Mansion was actually a mansion named Sunnyside. Aww. Aww. This house was built in 1880 by Warren and Sarah Brown and their children. This home is what you think of when you hear of old mansions, especially by New England standards. It has a carriage house, an old-fashioned windmill, and a barn, along with a giant Victorian house. In 2001, the new owner, or current owner, I should say, George Blaisdell found his mother covered in bruises to the extent that he wanted her to receive medical help. When he asked her what happened, because he didn't recall her leaving the house that night or morning, she claimed she was attacked by a young woman that was a ghost. Not long after, George's aunt was visiting and fell down the stairs. But she says she didn't fall. She claimed she could literally feel the shove that made her go down a flight of stairs. George moved into the governor's mansion in 1999. He claimed he was not a religious man, even calling himself an, quote, avid atheist. Ooh. I don't even know what avid, avid atheist is. It means he's the sort of guy who tell you he's an atheist and not shut the fuck up. Right? And, like, and you're kind of like, I didn't ask. I just held the door open for you. But okay. Right. It's like a vegan. <laughs> but by the time his mother and aunt were attacked, he noticed weird things happening. But to him, they were still all explainable. On many occasions, she could have just sworn he had seen a house cat run by from the corner of his eye. A few times, he thought he had just seen a young boy, only to look again and there was nothing there. Small objects sometimes would be moved around or just flat out missing. Once in a while, even he, the skeptic, would hear conversations in the other room, only for the room to be empty when he entered. If this was happening to me when I moved into a house, I'd instantly suspect paranormal activity and move back out (laughs) (laughs) all these little things were explainable though if you are hardcore skeptic even you would have an explanation things out of the corner of your eye just your eyes making images up for you to explain something like the wind blowing by missing candles well maybe you thought you put them there but obviously you couldn't have because they're not there hearing voices No, you're not. You're just alone and your mind is playing tricks on you. Two attacks on your family by nothing? Well, maybe your mind starts to turn. George brought a medium on his property. Always legit there. During her visit, she claims to have had channeled or seen dead pets, the former maid of the house Beatrice, and even the first owner of the house, Sarah, and her teenage daughter, Gertrude. She also told the tale of a little boy who drowned in the basement. So after reading this, I was even wondering. He claims to have seen a little boy out of the corner of his eye. And his mother claims a young girl beat her up. Could these actually be true? My first step was to look into the Warren Brown family of New Hampshire. Sarah and Warren had five children together. A baby boy that was stillborn. Harry, who lived until he was 33. Arthur, who lived until he was 87, and Gertrude, who lived only to be 18, and lastly, Mildred, who lived to be 85. Sarah Brown lived to see her 
and Warren's 50th wedding anniversary. So the angry teenager could match up since it appears Gertrude died very young. Drownings in the home? I struggled to find any sources to say anyone drowned in the home, but you have to take it being fact or fiction with a grain of salt. All records from the 18 to early 1900s are a little iffy, and only important things were reported on. The windmill of the property seems to be the place to hang out if you like the feeling of being watched, apparently. Or, for even one visitor, she claims she had her hair played with while she was standing there. Mm. There have also been plenty of reports of hearing or feeling someone breathing beside you if you were near the windmill. George has brought two paranormal groups in five different mediums into the house. He claims most of their stories matched up, down to Warren even killing a young boy. How does the family of Warren and Sarah Brown feel about all this attention the house gets? Pretty mad. I would imagine, yeah. But on the other hand, the descendants are not the ones who own the house. I bet they wish they did something to keep it in the family now. Shelley Parrish is Warren's great-granddaughter. She says George is making it all up for attention. Shelley was quoted from the New Hampshire's local paper, The Seacoast, saying, What's always troubling to us about George and the stories he presents as fact are their tales he tells over, all over town and on national TV, complete with much innuendo about our family. The family is rightfully angry at the current owners because he also claims he had a medium come in and say her great-grandpa had an affair and forced his mistress to have an abortion in the basement. Around this time, he also released a picture of him in a creepy-looking room in the basement. And this is a tale he'll tell over and over just on the source of a medium. And it could be a good spooky one, if it actually was true. He's taking the name of her great-grandfather and just dragging it through the mud, Shelley claims. I choose to ignore the unimaginably false story of my grandfather's adultery and murders. Once again, though, he claims these stories to be true, based on Ouija boards used by his children and mediums who visit the house. The dark characters he attributes to my great-grandfather bear no resemblance to the man I know, says his other great-granddaughter, Janice. Researching a little more, I found two interviews of the previous owners of the home, one of the last Brown family to live there and another of the owners who sold the house to George. Judith Swain of Hampton Falls grew up in the house and said nothing strange ever happened there. Her father also grew up in that same home and never told any ghost stories or even scandalous stories of the family's past. She says she felt they were remarkably boring. <laughs> <laughs> Jeannie Wright sold the house to George in 1999. She said her husband never believed in ghosts and neither did she. But she said she believed little in them after she moved in. She said objects would fall once in a while out of nowhere. She also said a piano tuner came in once and claimed he couldn't tune the piano because a ghost wouldn't get out of the way. But <laughs> she never saw the ghost. She openly said that she just accepted that there was a ghost living in her home just based on objects falling when they were not in the room. But she never actually saw the ghost. Jeannie said in the end you could just rationalize what had happened. So it might not necessarily be haunted, but she said she never really cared. <laughs> One thing I noticed in all this research, 
the pictures on the wall, they aren't old pictures of anyone's family or famous artwork or even some generic hotel art. They are clearly new framed pictures of just weird stuff that would definitely help if you're making money off of advertising TV shows and paranormal investigators. <laughs> weird pictures in the hall of sad toy clowns. A picture of a toy holding its own head. And ahead, you can see a painting of just a child in the distance dressed in red. Just weird pictures that don't actually represent any time frame, but would really help in making you feel uncomfortable. My favorite form of advertising? When you go on the Governor Mansion's website, it's all black with a picture of the top of the house that turns into a moving picture of the moon. The writing is a spooky looking font. There are just four boxes on the homepage, three of which are just more links. One to watch videos of the current owners and maybe the previous owners. You can't actually tell. None of the original family to confirm that, oh yeah, yeah, the place is haunted. And one that takes you through the remodel of the home. And if you look back, just to make it look weirder, and another that says, discover the paranormal. Our first box is the introduction to the home. It says, it's a home to George Bladesdell and his family, as well as his business, Bladesdell Insurance. It's also the home to many residents who never moved out. Well, every remodel comes with surprises, you can never guess what George has found in the walls of the mansion over the years. Welcome to the foyer of the governor's mansion. And that's it. You better believe I click discover the paranormal. And this page says, this old house, this is not. I mean, I, I copied this from the website. It says, this old house, this is not. The governor's mansion is haunted. Sci-Fi's Ghost Hunters is among the list of paranormal investigators who have plied the nooks and crannies of this property, confirming what George found out long ago. Yeah, they've never been full of shit before, right? <laughs> he and his family are not the only residents. Step down this corridor to read the stories, see the pictures, watch some videos, and try your hand at investigating on your own. So, yeah, that was enough for me. Spelling errors and moralics didn't work for me. I didn't watch any of their special videos or their nonsense. I might actually watch their TV specials because I'm a sucker and definitely discussing them during one of our shows. I'm not saying that his tales aren't true. I am saying when people thrive off the paranormal that it's something to be incredibly wary about. I'm with you on that. I mean, if if, if his whole stick is to, is to make money off of the house being haunted. He's doing a great job. Yeah. Well, retrofitting a house to make you uncomfortable. So he already retrofitted the house so it looks creepy. Yep. What else did he retrofit into the house? Exactly. And not only that, what I really don't like is right from the beginning of the story, uh, if, if the house is not haunted, why is his elderly mother covered in bruises and him making extravagant fucking stories about it. Yeah, that that's the really weird thing. So that's the first story that comes up when you look at this house. This is mom and aunt getting beat up. And you're like, whoa, okay, yeah, there's a ghost. But then you keep researching and you get 
current interviews from the last two owners who were like, eh, no. Then you get interviews from the family that were like, yeah, no, we didn't do anything. We're not exciting human beings. Right. And it's called the governor's mansion. And Warren Brown was the original owner. He built the house and he never ran for governor ever. See, if you're, if your major source and your confirmation is in something like a medium who is somebody who goes on the internet, researches the history of some place or somebody, and then manipulates it for money, I'm sorry. You're going to get told whatever you want to hear. Pretty much. And you can search all the ghost stories you want. Because I did for two, three days. All the ghost stories don't happen until George buys the house. Yeah. So... There's no ghost stories that aren't before 1999 besides the previous owner before George who was like, yeah, some logics fell down. And so I started to believe in ghosts and I was like, well, we just have one living with us. Okay. And that was it. She never saw a ghost except for the weird piano tuner who was like, hey, there's a ghost. I can't tune your piano. I hope she didn't pay him cash for right, because right. he, he was just being lazy. Yeah. But that, that was it. That was the only other ghost story. She is like, someone came to tune my piano and uh, couldn't do it. There was a ghost in the way. And she's like, well, I never saw any ghosts. And that's it. So how is this house from the 1880 have no ghost stories until 1999? <laughs> good old George and some profiteering. Yeah, and he's doing great. I mean, he's got, what, we tried to watch the movie. Or we tried to find the series of, of New England, and it yeah. was like two hours long and cost four ninety nine. So yeah, he's doing great. And then the Sci Fi Channel, they're no chumps, so right, they'll, they'll manipulate anything. Oh yeah, they'll anything. do anything. So I guess you're fine, George, but you can join the club of Colonel Buck. I'm not buying it. Right. I bet he's got a load of EVPs you can listen to. Oh, I bet he does. Oh, nothing. Quite like listening through static to try and make something out of nothing. <laughs> I can say if he is making enough money on this house or getting business from selling insurance out of a haunted house, he needs a better web designer because nobody has spell checked that thing <laughs> or punctuation. I mean, it says right there, this old house, this is not period. I don't even know what that means. Right. What does that even mean? Did you decide to be Shakespeare or Edgar Allan Poe for like just one half sentence? And you're like, okay, I'm done. I don't know, but I'm not, I'm not buying out. So just, just remember, George, if you're out there and you hear this and you're like, they're besmirching my good name. Just remember you claim somebody's grandfather is a fucking murderer and a rapist. <laughs> yeah, so, of a child. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, you should, you should not. Yeah, and I was reading one interview. Um, I think it was I think it was with um Shelley also the great granddaughter, and she said he is defaming my family's name and claiming we're lying about it. How would he feel if we did this to his family? Right. And of which the article just ended. Like I don't know if he even bothered to talk. But if his mother was actually bruised and injured, he doesn't (laughs) mind making money off of that, right? So yeah, he doesn't mind seeing his old grandmother who had a nightmare fell out of bed and has anemia covered in bruises and be like you know what i'm gonna make me some money bud (laughs) yeah that's exactly what it seemed like it happened Mm -hmm. so i'm pretty disappointed in you and i think i have more sympathy for this family right but you know what the lesson of this whole story is if you have a really old ass house that your family actually built you probably should keep it exactly because look what happened you end up with some schmuck making up stories from you know 
40-year-old ladies with dreadlocks who listen to too much friggin' Grateful Dead. <laughs> so, keep Grandma's house in the family. <laughs> that's all I learned out of this. Well, that's what we've got for you today, folks. I hope you enjoyed the change of the events. Right. I'm the pessimist this time. Yeah. Twice in a row. What? <laughs> I'm Ashley. I'm Stan. Find us on Twitter and Podbean at The Strange Show. Find us on Instagram at Strange Nanigan Podcast. And sign up for the Patreon and sign up for our show. We'll send you t-shirts and stuff. They're pretty cool. And fashionable tinfoil hats. Oh, yeah, don't forget, you will get a tinfoil hat. <laughs> Reynolds rap, baby. 